This is the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Why do we continue to allow that type of frustration for the care providers to exist when we can provide, I'm not saying a solution to every case, but at least an infrastructure and a systematic process that whether we agree or disagree with the ultimate decision being made, we know a process was followed. We did more than just cross our fingers and hope that the patient doesn't code on our shift. Are there better ways to build and support a culture of clinical ethics in healthcare? What might that look like? What has worked and how could the ideas and tools offered be implemented? These are some of the questions and challenges that our guests will wrestle with, as well as offering concrete examples and even practical solutions being tested today. Our guest, Mark Rapenchik, Senior Director of Ethics at Ascension Health, located in Wisconsin. Bob Strickland, Senior Vice President for Performance Management at Catholic Health Initiatives here in Colorado. And Bob Sheary, Vice President, Mission Integration, CHI Memorial in Tennessee. I'm Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. In the late 1990s, the idea was proposed, why not marry the work being done in healthcare ethics with quality improvement methodology? Would this type of thinking differently help us get traction and improve the systems and initiatives that clinical ethics tries to accomplish. I'm pleased to say that our guest, Mark Rapenchek, who's been a leader and published in this area for some years now, is with us to offer his perspective on this journey. Mark will offer an overview of the work he's been involved in and provide his lived examples that will serve as a springboard for our conversation. Two key questions will be raised in our dialogue. Does this marriage between clinical ethics and quality or performance improvement work? And what is necessary to make it work, sustain it, at both a systemic and initiatives level? Mark, how would you frame the beginning of this journey for you? So what we're going to talk a little bit about today is really this idea of pushing ethics much further upstream. I'm using a phrase, proactive ethics integration. And it helps us get away from these rubrics in which clinical ethics is traditionally understood, whether it's a dilemma or a conflict among decision makers, um, quite frankly, from time to time, a situation that people just don't want to deal with, um, crossing our finger, fingers, hoping that at least maybe not on my shift or at least maybe not on my rotation. Or finally, a situation where the issue has become so complex that we need to call in an expert and only the expert will be able to resolve this, as if no other groundwork could have been done uh, prior to. So this problem is not uh, a recent one, although I will say Fox and her colleagues really did a great job of helping us understand uh, the context out of which we need to address the quality issues in ethics consultation. And Mark, here, here in 2007, you're referencing an article done by Fox uh, entitled Ethics Consultation in the United States Hospitals, a national survey. That was a, that was a key article for you, correct? It was. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, it really, um, this AJOB piece really, I think, was one of the first where we saw a review of not only particular um, subsets of the healthcare industry, but this really went across all landscapes. This included Catholic healthcare facilities and included secular, it included uh, a variety of sizes of facilities and ethics committees. Um, and over and over and again, it was found that, um, you know, only a few number of ethics committees actually having reporting a fellowship or graduate program in bioethics, less than half had formal supervised training in ethics, just over half always made recommendations, but some never did at all. Just over a fifth performed no consultation in the previous year. And this is, you know, at large, large institutions were part of this group. Only 4% of consultants were evaluated by anyone outside of the process, and, and you can see moving on, essentially painting a not, not a very robust picture of not only the outcomes achieved by clinical ethics consultation, but the infrastructure and the credibility of those providing that, that work. And, and I, you know, Jason Batten says this a little more 
a little more straightforwardly and a little more critically, suggesting, look, if the Joint Commission requires a body within the institution to be able to address complex ethical issues, the ERDs specific to 37 sets a very significant bar for what that ought to look like. And with Fox's work, this is our current response. Uh, it seems to me that a basic gap analysis would say we've got a lot of work to do. So stated differently, I mean, this really helped us kind of state the problem for how we wanted to approach this. Despite ethics being engaged in some of the most complex and delicate clinical situations, little is known about our quality or effectiveness. There's relatively apparent that there's little or no basic qualifying, certifying, or credentialing requirement. Uh, we've operated under the norm of good and well-intended people who want to volunteer time. Nothing wrong with that. It's just if we're going to raise the bar on expectations, what does that need, what is the, what does that need to look like? The majority of these committees are not collecting data on consultation nor any type of outcomes. And we have very few ways of demonstrating the services offered. What does it mean when we offer ethics consultation? Are all ethics consultations alike? Who ought to do them? Why do we gather these particular teams? Um, is it merely who's available at the time? All of that infrastructure and process contemplation that goes into, we would hope, a group or a body that is responding again to some of the most complex situations that occur within our, our institutions. And I'm speaking here experientially. I mean, I'll go a little bit more backdrop. At least in Wisconsin, the areas that I'm responsible for, we have 27 hospitals just in Wisconsin. Uh, we have created a structure of about 15 ethics committees to cover those 27 facilities, all the way from critical access to large tertiary centers. And 16 years ago, when I arrived in a much smaller system, just a couple of those hospitals, I would say it was no different. In fact, I remember coming in, um, degreed in this area, and the question was even raised, do you want to sit on the ethics committee? Like, well, this is kind of my job. So I hope there's an invitation to that and some ability to collaborate and, 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 and move that forward. And it really was, at the time, well-intended volunteers sitting on a committee called to a few cases a year, but largely handled solely by the chair and not a lot of definition and infrastructure around what it is that is being done by ethics committees and really largely constituted a monthly meeting. So I use this image only to illustrate, I think, part of the problem. This really seems to be clinical ethics consultation, right? I mean, we have all these great stories of how all our consultations occur Friday at 4. We're always putting out fires. You know, all of <laughs> For all of those of you who have gone through accreditation, you know, everything, there couldn't be more wrong with this picture. One, the firefighter aiming high at the fire instead of down low. Two, all alone, uh, what looks like to be in the face of a pretty significant raging blaze. And three, you know, looking kind of nonchalant, like, well, you know, we'll see what I can do here. That can't be our current reality. I mean, that can't be our reality moving forward. Given, again, the complexity of what we face and the types of consultation that we're asked to participate in, we need to have a more thoughtful and structured response. So part of one of our, or one of our initial insights was to say, and this goes back to the question I kind of rhetorically raised earlier, is, um, you know, is there something different about the types of consultation we offer and the work of a committee? And what would that new paradigm look like? So, where we started was to say, well, look, not all consults are alike. There are some where we simply provide some advisement. We, don't, we weren't even given a patient's name. We don't even know what service line they're on, or even if they're in our state, maybe it was post-discharge. But ought we not characterize them differently? If we do, does that mean that we can actually think differently about how we deploy resources to what's requested of us in a different way instead of calling a consult and somebody responds. Well, who's that somebody and why? And the previous thought process was, well, gosh, we could always do this better if we just could hire more ethicists. And that put a strain and, and, um, on academic centers that are they producing the persons we are looking for and the degrees, et cetera. And it also puts a strain on 
being able to justify more FTEs in a, at least for us, which is a very constrained environment. So that led us to rethink, one, not all consults are alike. The implication therein is that if we're talking about a general advisement versus something like a patient care consultation, and I'll get to definitions of those later in the presentation, that we can appropriate different um, uh, deliverables to each of those requests. So what that meant for us then is, well, what would an embedded model look like? Meaning we already have ethics committee members who are coming from an interdisciplinary standpoint from different units. We haven't maybe given much thought to date as to who those members should be and why. But what if we would think about this in, in more of a um, operational mode of right time, right place, right way? Namely, as close as possible to the person being served. What would that look like? What would our membership look like? What would we be asking them to do? And then at the increased capacity level, is there a way that we can put together a structure that could deliver on very specific types of education, maybe even using the medical model of learn once you and do one, where people would have a safe environment to practice this work and do so in a manner that is scoped appropriately so that they don't feel that they're operating outside of their skill set. I'm always struck by the idea that you know, maybe some of us put together call schedules and we hand off the pager and all those types of things. I'll be quite frank with you right now, we don't have a pager and we don't have a call structure as a result of this model. I'm always struck by the idea that somehow we're supposed to have a pager and we'd say, well, I hear this often, well, don't worry, people don't typically call, you should be fine. And then people would kind of, with some trepidation, grab the pager um, say, okay, well, I'll take it this week or maybe this weekend or whatever it is. And we gave them very little other than their own experience on the ethics committee as a backdrop for venturing into this territory, which is, again, some of the most clinically complex cases we encounter. Why would anyone sign up for that? <laughs> it doesn't sound very appealing. And yet we were surprised then why maybe membership lapsed or why there might have been some struggles with populating the ethics committee. And, and we felt that this restructuring was really helpful in that regard. Mark, could I ask a question? Please. Yeah, so the slide we have up right now, a proactive ethics integration. I'm just wanting to pull in Bob here. Bob from, and that's Bob Strickland, um, our senior VP for performance improvement. As you hear the type of scenario that Mark just outlined, almost kind of like the, the previous current state, does it sound unlike or like many of the different types of performance improvement projects that that you've worked on where people are just trying to understand a better way to offer a service, a better way to respond to a need clinically. Um, what, what's your thoughts as you hear this kind of landscape that Mark's drawn for us? It's interesting that you ask, because um, I was just thinking that, I was thinking of this in terms of what you might think of as scientific management. And so what I mean by that is we've got a problem, and what we do here is we come up with, just like a scientist would, we use observation to come up with a theory on what would, what would solve that problem or make the situation better. And as I look at the description of the new paradigm, and Mark, it'd be interesting to hear what, what your thoughts are on, on this, that new paradigm essentially represents if I'm understanding it correctly, a theory about what would make the situation better. And so when the, what the scientists would do at that point is begin to um, flesh out what kind of interventions would allow them to test that theory right. and then would uh, have a plan for collect. I noticed Mark said earlier that uh, the ethics committees had little to no data on the effectiveness of what they did. And so in this case, the scientists would have a plan to collect data to either confirm or disconfirm his or her theories on what was going to make it better. So I was sitting here thinking, maybe that's where Mark is heading. But, um, but uh, without putting words in your mouth, Mark, uh, how does that ring to you? No, I think that's spot on. I mean, I, I love the framework because uh, this really is testing a hypothesis. And a couple of years ago, our original hypothesis you know, in operational terms, had to go 
to the office of the president to say, okay, hey, look, this is we're going to be re distributing resources within the organization. Do we have your full support to do this? And here's here's the assumptions this is based off of. Here's the statement of the problem, and here's where we want to head. And it's precisely through those metrics that we're able to attest to the fact that the results that we were looking for are happening. And you know, I would say we're probably about two to three years out in some of our markets. And it's really exciting to see not only in terms of what we were hoping to achieve, but some unexpected outcomes that have that I'll talk about later that have really brought a sense of joy and meaning and purpose and value into those into the work of those who sit on the ethics committee in a way that we we did not anticipate. So part of what we wanted to start with in terms of understanding this new paradigm was really kind of define our terms very, very early on in the process. We wanted to make sure that we understood what we meant when we were talking about what ethics is going to do, what is it going to provide. So we, we were very careful in choosing our words here. So we argue that our clinical ethics services support care providers and families in addressing complex treatment questions that arise from the sacredness of every person, their unique beliefs, values, and life story within the context of their specific health needs. What we try to piece together here is a little bit of narrative ethics, while at the same time recognizing that we're going to put some placeholders in that very specifically tap into the commitments that we have to human dignity within a Catholic healthcare context, and at the same time recognizing that clinical ethics is not all we are about. If we're going to, as Kevin opened with, marry this quality initiative to the clinical consultation that we deliver on, we want to be able to demonstrate that we are going to help fulfill our mission, the quadruple aim, and our call to action. So it gave us now a roadmap to say, okay, um, what are the tactics that we're going to use to achieve that strategic vision? And there's not, um, you know, pulling the words apart um, rather than trying to coin it uh, or something to that effect, you know, it really is exactly what the words suggest. Um, but I think it's understanding the implications of trying to move ethics infrastructure upstream that gets at this idea of being proactive. So what we really mean here is embedding systematic approaches and standardized resources for identifying and addressing ethical issues in existing and emerging settings. A couple of points I want to point, uh, address here before going to the purposes that we really talked about uh, systematic approaches. I would use, I would suggest that this has much of the flavor of the quality initiatives dating back to IHI, uh, where we were talking about things like event-related pneumonias, right, as an example. That was usually just seen as a part of ICU stays where patients have events, right? And now, uh, thanks in part to pathways and bundles, et cetera, they're seen as a rare event. That's a major and significant clinical shift and a quality outcome for patients and caregivers that challenges some of the old assumptions. But it was achieved through embedding systematic approaches. On the flip side, some critiqued it as cookbook medicine until they saw the outcomes from standardizing these processes and embedding those processes into our structures. In the ethics world, that might look like taking rounds, safety rounds, and embedding some very key questions. How many times do we get consults on surrogate decision making? How many times do we get consults on advanced directives? How many times do we get consults on code status? Perhaps embedding three key questions or two questions or one into safety huddle or rounds that that structure is accountable to every single day can help provide that factual basis or information and work to be done if there's uncertainty that no longer waits for problems or issues to arise, but addresses them each and every part, each and every day, just like we would other quality or safety issues. And in doing so, it not only allows us to identify or address those issues as they exist, but also where they may emerge. Meaning, are there ways that we can actually think about uh, building our membership into the continuum so that as patients move through the continuum, they're actually or moving through different care settings, because of the way the Ethics Committee membership is structured, patients move through those different portions of the continuum, and the Ethics Committee is ever-presently aware. 
because that patient represent, representatives from those different aspects of the continuum are integrated into our committee membership. So in terms of a plan, I, I, I don't know about your resolution, but this slide seems a little uh, busy. That's my own fault. <laughs> but um, there's a couple of things going on here, and, and I want to explain each of those. Um, so I would love to say that this beautifully laid out graphic uh, with all its dimensions was day one of our desire to build the Center for Excellence in Catholic Healthcare Ethics uh, for Ascension. That would be a, uh, an unfair characterization. I would suggest we started somewhere in the middle and then went both ways simultaneously. It is fair to say, at least in terms of how this graphic looks, you know, obviously the chronology is on the bottom, uh, critically important because what I don't want to do is give the impression that you, know, you simply flip the switch and next year you can have this up and running. This is certainly at least a four-year process for us. And it started with a clear rationale for this center model, why we needed this and why we needed to reallocate system structures to address all of the issues Fox had identified and how specific tactics were going to help resolve some of those issues that Fox had pointed out. So the, the big arrow at the top is essentially kind of a classic um, operational implementation flow moving from rationale to design and development, um, almost the scientific method you were talking about earlier, pilot and deploy, distribute among system structures, and then ongoing implementation and refinement. The next box down is simply to talk about what the implications of each of those steps would be. What did we need to put in place then? What were the things that we needed to have that would allow us to move from rationale to design and development? And in the blue boxes below, what were some of the implications for each of those structures that were designed? The red boxes at the top are really key stakeholders that needed to be involved along the way that without their approval and without their collaboration, we felt we would not be able to move forward. So just to highlight a couple of things here, um, I already talked about the rationale and, and what the requirements were around some of the metrics then, which gave us some early outcomes that we were going to build in, and we were able to work backwards from what we wanted to see happen, you know, those questions raised, those hypotheses, so that we could build in an infrastructure and a database that would allow us to track information that would at least give us a sense of whether we could validate the hypothesis or have to pivot in light of the data we were seeing. When we went to the design and development phase, we realized pretty quickly that we were going to need to have some structures in place that um, were going to provide what was needed to deliver on the model. So for example, if we're going to say that we want to empower membership who sits on ethics committees redesigned toward this particular endpoint, how are we going to train them in a standardized fashion and do that not just at a particular site, but be able to do this across all of Ascension in a standard and systematic way that's going to produce the outcome for which the education is designed. So it had to be far more than just didactic. And that led to what we designed and what we called the clinical ethics intensive, modeled off of some of the intensive that maybe some of you have attended or have seen advertised, at, at whether it's MedStar or um, Georgetown or others. But doing it ourselves allowed us to design and tailor the content in a way that very quickly helped us achieve the infrastructure we needed. And Mark, when you and say- it led to more Mark, in the weeds pieces like standardized charters, standardized policies, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it may seem small, but when we can start going back to those particular pieces and each and every time, again, highlight what's the jobs to be done by persons who sit on the ethics committee, there's an expectation and accountability to that endpoint that reframed conversation for why it's important to have the right people on the ethics committee, which gave us a new conversation with their direct reports and uh, with their one-ups to say this is why we need this role, not person, but this role on the committee. How do we build that in to productivity? Mark, a question for you from one of our viewers or listeners. And the question is, does this process involve some specific ethics-trained specialist? So you talked about your ethics intensive. 
So the question is, does it involve ethics specialists? And if so, for want of resources, what are options if one is not always available? So uh, the persons who are trained through the clinical ethics intensive are our ethics committee members. And I'll get to this in a little bit. I think it maybe even as in the, ne the next slide in terms of structure. The, the persons who I would say fit into that category of ethics experts, uh, maybe having a graduate degree of some sort or are hired into that specific role, only serve as faculty for this program. The membership of who attends a clinical ethics intensive are the very people who are on the ethics committee embedded in our service lines, and the clinical ethics intensive is designed to train a significant portion of the ethics committee to be able to deliver on this expectation of clinical ethics consultation. So the important part of this particular slide here, and I apologize that the animation didn't occur, but the two middle columns, I differentiate here between what we call embedded ethics resource and to the left of that, the ethics point person. How this kind of all fits together is, remember when we talked about the fact that not all ethics consultations are alike? Well, we, we realized that because we were able to define them differently, there are certain types of clinical, consult, clinical ethics consultation that are relatively straightforward. Um, very common issues that we encounter often. In fact, oftentimes policy can speak to those. But it's not just a matter of reading policy to somebody. It's helping them understand the context in which that policy was developed or its application to this particular situation. That's a valuable resource, an incredibly valuable resource. And so our embedded ethics resources are persons who sit on the ethics committee who participate in the core curriculum and are, have gone through the onboarding process and uh, to sit on our ethics integration committees, period. Their roles are to respond on, to general advisement and policy clarification. And when learnings or takeaways are explicitly defined after an ethics committee meeting, those are the takeaways that go back to any unit-based education. That's their role, no more, no less. The ethics point persons are the persons who sit on the ethics committee that also are uh, able to perform those functions but additionally go through the clinical ethics intensive, a full one-day training where we apply the medical model of learn one, see one, do one, in safe space where they are able to practice this skill set of advising to care teams through care conference structures, utilizing a number of different tools that we have as well as the skills that they build during the clinical ethics intensive and are certified after that training fulfill that role in which they would then, in their normal roles as spiritual care services or case manager or physician or nurse could also serve in this point person capacity to provide clinical consultation in concert with their team, whatever that team might look like, on that particular patient as those issues arise. What it also did is that we said, okay, now that we've got these defined roles and those are our ethics committee members, it helped us understand that we're going to want to look at membership in a different way. And based on some of the acuity levels and the types of consults we get and where those consults are occurring, which we all know full well where those levels are within our organizations, let's build some bench strength in those areas. Meaning, maybe in the ICU we're gonna have three people that are sit on the ethics committee from different disciplines and across different dimensions of that particular setting. But that gives us some bench strength to the question of how many and who and why. They don't all have to serve as ethics point persons, but it certainly helps us understand and appropriate membership to the highest level of acuity and clinical complexity. Mark, a question for you. You know, at this juncture, when you talk about trying to uh, develop some bench strength and utilizing people from the ICU or, or particular units, what was that like when you first tried to roll that out with them? What were some of the challenges? Did people kind of uh, lean into it right away? Was there some explanations needed? Just how did that go? Yeah, no, great question, Kevin. So this is where, this is kind of almost to that lessons learned uh, that we'll get to later, but part of what we had to be prepared for is that we knew that some people who sat on the ethics committee currently very much enjoyed coming to a monthly meeting and, and talking about complex cases. That was all they wanted to do. Uh, and I get that, I appreciate it. I, I thoroughly enjoy the ethics committees. They're, they're, it's a great meeting. If you have to attend a meeting, that's one to attend. But when we started to move to this idea of jobs to be done, what is it that we're asking of people? I would say for some committees, we saw maybe almost a third of the committee membership depart. 
And we had to really understand that that is also a lesson learned. That's not a failure. That's just a different understanding of what the expectation of an ethics committee member is going to be coming out of an older model uh, where one could just simply participate. Well, we didn't want just participation. We didn't want just a spectator sport. We wanted people and needed people to dive in, as you said, Kevin, lean in and see how their role as an integral part of the ethics committee translates to their unit. And once we helped give clarity and define this and put it in the context of this broader vision of what we're looking to achieve, I would say there was also a third of the committee that was really excited about the fact that they were now going to be asked to do the work that they were originally hoping they would be a part of by sitting on the ethics committee, where maybe they had an expert model and, and the clinical ethicist took all the cases, right, except for maybe when they were on vacation. They didn't need to sit there and hear a report out from the quote-unquote expert each and every time when they knew full well they actually had something of value to add. And so you had that real strong desire and push to say, outstanding, now we're a part of this work. And then I would say a third who said, okay, let's see how this works out. I'm in principle on board. Let's see how it plays out. And wanting to experience the education, did they feel that that was the intensive was going to give them what they needed to step into that role? What are the other resources, the core curriculum? We'll talk about an app in a little bit, um, standard documentation in the EMR. With all these structures and resources, do I feel now empowered to do this type of work? Mark, if I could, another question. And actually, I want to bring Bob Sherry into the conversation, uh, Vice President for Mission Integration in Tennessee. Bob, as, as you listen to Mark and hear about some of the changes that, that they've made and where they came from and where they're heading to, are any questions kind of going through your mind as you're, uh, you're listening here so far? Well, I think what I really appreciate is the, the notion of building greater capacity for addressing ethical issues in a more proactive way as close to the patient as possible. And, and that's, I, I'm just waiting to hear a little bit more about that, what goes into that training and that education and, and how do people from different disciplines respond in that role? No, those are all great questions, and you know, I'll talk a little bit more about the clinical ethics intensives, I think, in one of the upcoming slides, what that curriculum looked like. But I would say in terms of responding in that role, you know, the, the neatest thing that occurred that I alluded to earlier about what we did not expect happened to happen, happened, was that people actually felt and articulated this over and over again, that the education, the learning, the experience of working collaboratively in this setting with the resources provided and the infrastructure and systematic approaches to guide them helped them actually be a better chaplain, a better care manager, a better physician, a better nurse. You know, how many times do we, you know, even the literature is starting to link moral distress to unanswered ethical questions, right? A patient who you come in on and see the next day still in the ICU, still full code, no one has had the ability to really address the conversation or address the issue about the appropriate surrogate and their desire to continue to have everything done. This scenario plays out in our ICUs all across the United States every single day. Why do we continue to allow that type of frustration for the care providers exist when we can provide, I'm not saying a solution to every case, but at least an infrastructure and a systematic process that whether we agree or disagree with the ultimate decision being made, we know a process was followed. We did more than just cross our fingers and hope that the patient doesn't code on our shift. So what that means is we need structure. And we need that structure to align, and we need to define purpose and function for that structure. So, so it's kind of almost a Maslow's hierarchy here, but we built it based on the fact that the bottom layer is really what we called our ethics embedded resource and our ethics point people. Those are the persons who populate our ethics committees and make up that ethics integration committee. So you see that as the first box. But that ethics integration committee, for example, I'll take Wisconsin as an example. We've got 15 committees. We don't want them going in 15 different directions. So the chairs of all those committees meet on an every other month basis to develop strategy and tactics around the deliverables that are part of this model as a coordinating council. They become the leadership for ethics across our market for uh, helping guide and steer the ethics committees in a singular direction. 
that group then is part and parcel of an ethics advisory committee and an ethics advisory leadership council, both at the system office level, where representation, select representation from that ethics coordinating council sits as part of that leadership council, which is then at the highest level of the organization advising on systematic approaches or in response to issues that are identified, systematic resources that can be deployed throughout the ascension as a whole. And then it gives us a vehicle to cascade those right back through that infrastructure down into the ethics integration committees to be deployed. Uh, Mark, this is a, Bob, a question strikes me as I look at the model the, uh, that you introduced a few slides ago and then you, you start to get into the structure. Well, you, meant, you referenced the IHI improvement model, and one of the things that model does for um, quality improvement or process improvement is it talks about the plan, do, study, act cycle. Mm -hmm. When you come up with a plan, you carry it out, you, you study the results, and then decide whether it was, in fact, an improvement. And it talks about spinning that cycle multiple times during an improvement project with lots of little, uh, they used to refer to little experiments. So as I look at your model, one of the, one of the problems that process improvement people are sometimes confronted with is making a lot of changes simultaneously and then not being exactly sure which changes had the impact. And so the danger, of course, is that you have a lot of stuff that's, uh, that's changed in a process, maybe unnecessarily. So I was thinking about that as you were going through your model, but the, here's the thought that hit me, and this is what I'd like for you to tell me whether I'm on track or not. This whole model seems so integrated. I mean, you've got... You've got changes in taxonomy. You've got standardized work across multiple elements. You've got standardized roles for people to play educational programs. I started to think about pulling it apart, and I thought, it doesn't make sense. It's almost like, uh, to stay with my science metaphor, it's almost like uh, Einstein's general theory of real relativity applied to ethics. So you really can't pull it apart. It, it almost is a coherent whole, an entirely new framework for thinking about this and has to be tested all at once. I'm just wondering if you guys ran into any of those things in your, in your journey, any of those questions. Yeah, I would say, you know, uh, at this particular point in some of the markets, there's no question that uh, all of the cogs are kind of working together and, and the machine is... is nicely oiled and it's, it's operating very, very well. I think where we have realized where we've hit some barriers is where in isolation a particular initiative was attempted separate from the foundational element upon which some of the assumptions were made to, that required that particular structure. Let me give you an example. The CEI, the Clinical Ethics Intensive, early on some of the markets attempted to utilize the CEI as a great educational initiative to standardize the ethics education across multiple domains. Well, that's not what it was designed for. People then coming out of the CEI were very unclear as to their role and felt, oh my, what am I being asked to do? I'm not comfortable doing X, Y, or Z, which might be a role assigned to a higher level, and started to get apprehensive and didn't want to execute on that particular role. So it absolutely does all fit together in a very structured way, but pieces of it pulled apart can't, can't function in isolation. And that was a perfect example where one of our markets basically just had to press reset and say, okay, I gotta go back and redefine my terms and re-educate because of the fact that that was a miss. That was a big miss and well-intended, right? I mean, wanting to distribute that education more broadly than just through the ethics committees and the ethics point people, uh, but it had an unforeseen outcome that was problematic. So you actually have Speaking evidence. Your continuous quality improvement loop, I won't spend much time on this, but that previous slide, if you anyone wants to go back and look at it, relative to uh, frontline associate ethics, embedded ethics resource, ethics point first, yep, thank you. There is that continuous quality improvement loop there where you know, see, at least in terms of the clinical work, kind of as issues get escalated through that level and looped back in terms of proactive ethics integration, 
this continuous quality improvement loop ensures that all the way through that structure, whether it's the Ethics Coordinating Council or the Ethics Committee or even at the highest levels of the system office, those complex cases that require movement up and through that model trickle back down to all ethics committees and the learnings are takeaways for all so that this doesn't become a, a new and idiosyncratic ethics issue that only one person or one system is aware of and, and rather deploy those learnings throughout. So that's interesting. Uh, you, you actually do have evidence that individual elements of the models trying to stand on their own are ineffective. There actually, there actually is interaction between the, between the elements of the elements of the model, which makes them all necessary as a coherent whole. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, and I could give you. I won't spend time here, but I could give you multiple other examples. Whether it's our app or the core curriculum, where there's been attempts to use it in ways not integral to the model, well intended, but consequences for that because it was felt well that piece is you know in response to Fox's work. That's all we need, and then this will fire on all cylinders. Uh, no. <laughs> so. So speaking to some of these building blocks, some of the earlier questions already alluded to these. I won't spend a lot of time here. We're up, we're coming up. Uh, we're just past quarter two, but I will say that, you know, talking about the clinical ethics intensive again, a one-day intensive experience, early didactics, about an hour and a half to kind of set the foundation. Then the middle part of the day is focused on utilizing these tools and resources in an experiential fashion as ad hoc ethics committees focused on very specific types of cases, but moving through, for example, a standard methodology for analyzing cases, that then that standard methodology is brought back to each of the ethics committees and, and required to be used in case analysis over and over and over and every single time so that we get used to doing clinical ethics consultation with a, in a standardized methodology. And then in the afternoon, the latter portion of that CEI, practicing in hypotheticals, role-playing in hypothetical care conferences, care provider care conferences, where they're working with the physician, the nurse, the chaplain, whomever it may be, in dialogue uh, as to why they've encountered this issue that's been identified as a ethics issue and wanting to provide some initial advisement in that and really starting to practice what it would look like to use their resources that they have available to them in dialogue with um, other m members of the care provider team to um, arrive at a set of recommendations that then the attending ultimately can bring forward to the patient or family or whatever it might be. We have standardized charters for our ethics integration committees and our coordinating councils with expectations and roles standardized, a core curriculum that's standardized throughout Ascension. Um, similar to the uh, core curriculum that you all have. Uh, we did develop an app, MyEthicsRx. It is an app that, again, thinking about the model separately, gosh, this is great. Let's just roll this out and put the power of ethics consultation in the hands of everyone. Well, it <laughs> doesn't work that way. Um, it needs context. It needs understanding. It needs an ability to explain how to use that particular app and why it's beneficial and how it sets up guardrails, not necessarily here's the answer you're looking for, but incredibly helpful, again, because it helped us form the foundation of access to resources that people knew had an authoritative level uh, or a basis for advisement. Standardized clinical ethics documentation in the EMR. We have seven different EMRs, so that took a little bit of work nationally, but it really helped us get to how we want to think about communicating in the medical record where that's appropriate. The things that we've learned, we've already touched on some of these, but I will say not to be underestimated is number two. This idea of what it means to think about span of influence versus span of control. Span of control often is about how many people report to you, right? And it's kind of almost a, a power over type of mentality of jobs to be done, meaning I will ask you to set expectations and put it into whatever accountability matrix you have. Whereas ethics is always over span of influence. It means equipping, empowering others to be able to attend to the ethical dimensions of the role that's inherent to their vocation, right? Think of all the vocations that we're dealing with. Medicine, nursing, spiritual care services, care management, they all have their own code of ethics. That should be no surprise. What we're helping people do is tap into how that reality of their own profession can come to life in a new way, understanding that that is not just a set of guidelines for them in their role, 
a set of guidelines uh, writ large that really helps on that idea of span of influence rather than span of control. I will say also the idea of failing fast. That turnover on the ethics committee when people were saying, you know, I didn't sign up for this. Okay, that's fine. We appreciate your years of service and thank you for your honesty in terms of the fact that this isn't what you look forward to doing relative to your ethics committee membership. But this is what we're asking and here are the expectations and how do we move forward in partnership with leadership of the institution who's accountable ultimately for that ethics process to ensure that we have the right membership. And then finally, I will say don't let that old paradigm creep back in. <laughs> kind of that, it links to 10 well, uh, where that ethicist might have been the sage on the stage as opposed to really kind of a guide or, or a, a mentor, a leader, a collaborator. Um, it doesn't mean that the ethics expertise can go away because there always are going to be cases that triage to that level. But now that work shifts to setting up infrastructure and processes based off of years of experience in the field to ensure that this can, skill set can be passed along. I think the best testament to why this becomes so critical is that as people shift within our organizations, no longer is ethics consultation and its processes contingent upon the good work of an individual, but it's a replicable system that can sustain itself over time regardless of associate turnover, regardless of leadership, the infrastructure is hardwired, and that becomes the piece that's so valuable. Mark, I think I might bring in Bob Sherry. Bob, as you've been listening, and we're moving to our questions phase of our webinar. Any questions come up for you? And uh, we'll also say to our listeners that if you have questions, please feel free to raise your hand as well. But Bob, any, any questions come from you? Yes, Mark, I was uh, thinking as, as you were speaking, Ascension is a very large health system across this country, all, all kinds of states and dioceses throughout. How did this process impact the important work of policy development? Yeah, great question. So based on the market variances, so we divide ourselves into large market, mid-market, and independence. And also, obviously, there's statutory impact and, and all those types of things. What allowed us to do, what this infrastructure allowed us to do is say, okay, look, surrogate decision-making is not unique to Wisconsin. It happens all over the place, right? So is there a way that we can think about a standard systematic approach to how we want to set up guidelines or guardrails around what constitutes an ability to help people think through a surrogate decision-making process that we all encounter? Where the problems and ethics issues arise is typically in a question of whether or not that surrogate is making a decision on behalf of the patient in a way that best represents the patient's value set, right? And we have ethics tools and principles that help guide us, substituted judgment and best interests. Those definitions and terms don't change across state lines. The operational impact might, or whether one has a surrogacy act might, but the concepts, the structure doesn't change. So it gave us an opportunity to say, okay, let's actually think about not necessarily creating the policy for each of our markets, but creating the guidelines for how a policy may be developed within each of those markets, always inclusive of the pieces that we do know are normative. And that allowed us our starting point then. There's no redundancy. There's no inefficiencies in terms of, well, gosh, is there this new insight we learned in Indiana or Texas or Tennessee? It's here's where we're going to start. These are the things that we attend to. So it raises the bar in terms of your starting point for conversation. You know all of this, and this will all stay. So now what do we need to add or what unique pieces do we need to include based on either state, statute, geography, whatever it might be. So it gave us a really a huge leverage point. I, it is not fair to say, however, that we have standardized policies throughout all of Ascension that span all of Ascension. Our charters do, 
our EIC charter and our ECC charter, the Ethics Coordinating Council and Committee charters are singular and span the entirety of Ascension. Not a single system has a differing charter or policy in those areas. And that, again, now provides us the impetus to begin to think about what are some of those policies or structures that would be consistent. The first one that we deployed I would say over half of our systems and markets is a policy on non-beneficial medical interventions. Getting away from the whole futility debate, really trying to reinforce the idea of what constitutes support of the medical model for those interventions that are within the realm of clinically reasonable, good clinical practice, and what happens when patients or families request interventions outside of that rubric. This vehicle, this structure, gives us a way to have that conversation at a system level and deploy a standard approach. We're now putting in front of you a slide on proactive ethics articles. So first you'll see the Google Drive link that will lead you to a set of about 12 different articles that have been written over time, some of them talking about proactive ethics and some of them actually uh, highlighting interventions, experiments, as Bob has talked about them, in ethics, uh, looking at improvement. And as well, we also have listed some of the articles that have been written over time on this slide. So each of those are resources that you can identify and follow up on and read. It would appear that there may be, and in fact are, better approaches out there for us to discover regarding the work and goal of, of clinical ethics. We're very appreciative of each of our guests for sharing their insights and experience, addressing the ethical and performance improvement challenges as well as the practical solutions being tested today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this edition entitled, Thinking Differently, Building Blocks for Quality Ethics Program. I'm Kevin Murphy. And this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.